So, when's the last time you were really thirsty? I mean, super thirsty. Do you remember time? After pizza on Wednesday night? Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Yeah, our small group had pizza and you know how you get thirsty at night after that. I mean, certainly there are different levels of thirst, right? There's Wednesday night pizza thirst at night. There's uh, I just had a dry mouth, so I took a swig of water before I got up here. But I can remember the time I was probably the thirstiest in my entire life. When I was 17 years old, I was at, in the state wrestling tournament for Washington, and it was in the Tacoma Dome. And I was eight pounds overweight the night before the tournament. You have to weigh in the morning of the tournament, which is pretty normal. I think I normally weighed 140-ish, and I wrestled 115 that year, so you do the math. Um, I had to stay pretty low. So what you do is you just don't drink the day before. It's really healthy. Kids don't do this. Um, yeah, so you, you just don't drink before. And I had multiple layers of sweatpants and sweatshirts and ran the stairs to the Tacoma Dome. And, of course, there's everyone's doing this. You're just completely sweating out. To motivate me, I put a big bottle of Gatorade, my favorite orange, it was the orange Gatorade, in my bag right next to the scale so that when I weighed in, I knew I could just have that cold Gatorade. No drink on the face of the earth thus far has tasted so good. When's the last time you were really thirsty? Water is essential to human life. Next to air, water is the most essential natural element to living. Water makes up two-thirds of the weight of your body, of the average human body. Your brain is made up of between 70 and 80% water, and your blood is over 95% water. Right, Emily? Am I in the ballpark? Yeah, nurse practitioner. If your water level of your body drops a mere 2%, you will start to feel the effects of mild dehydration, like fuzzy short-term memory, difficulty in simple math. I mean, I think I must always be dehydrated because that's a big issue for me. And difficulty focusing. So before I preach, it's now mandatory that you drink lots of water. Okay. So you can start to feel these, these effects. And the studies have shown that 75% of Americans are chronically fatigued, chronically dehydrated to a little degree. Water is also just vital for the mechanics of the body. Lubricates your joints. It makes your saliva. It regulates body temperature. It helps move things along digestively. It helps regulate metabolism. Water plays a key role in disease prevention. If you have a minimum of eight glasses of water a day, you're less than you're 45 percent less likely to have colon cancer and 50 percent less likely to have bladder cancer. Water, absolutely vital. These truths are universal across the human race. But we in the Pacific Northwest oftentimes, I think, take water for granted, don't we? In fact, most of us try to escape it sometime during the year to get out of this gray, soaked area. But in the biblical setting, water was not abundant like it is here. The arid climate of Palestine made it impossible for people to take water for granted. Water meant life, crops, a thriving fishing industry. Water equaled survival. And it was on the minds of the people of Palestine quite often in their year. It's no wonder then that the land where biblical literature comes out of has the metaphor of water all throughout Scripture. 
Now in previous weeks we've seen Jesus turn water into wine, give living water to the Samaritan woman, heal a crippled man who is by a pool of healing water. And this evening, this evening's text also centers on Jesus and the symbolism of water. As we engage the text this evening, I want you to be looking for the theme of thirst and asking yourself, what am I thirsty for? What am I thirsty for? Would you please stand for the reading of the Gospel? I'll be reading John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 and 37 through 39. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, were trying to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths or tabernacles, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may see your works which you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast, because my time has not yet fully come. He stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. And some were saying, He's a good man. And others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him because of fear of the Jewish leaders. Now, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because he... Jesus was not yet glorified. You may be seated. John opens chapter 7 by reminding us that the religious leaders were seeking to kill Jesus, especially the ones in the area of Judea. Why, was he, they, why were they seeking to kill him? Because he was rocking their world, breaking all the paradigms, all the rules in the name of God. He, and primarily thus far, we've seen in John chapter 5 how Jesus healed a man who had been ill for 38 years on the Sabbath day. He healed this man on the Sabbath day. He was saying and doing the things that only Yahweh, the one true God, should be saying. And doing. Now, if you recall, we spent the last two weeks in John chapter 6, and the background for John 6 was what festival? You're whispering. Passover, yes. Passover, it was the Passover. The festivals, the three main festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles existed for two 
main reasons, and this is simplistic, but two main reasons. One, to remember what God had done. To remember what God had done in the life of Israel. And two, to renew people's faith and hope about what God might do in the future. John tells us that it was time for the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. The Feast of Sukkoth, which actually just happened, I think, a week or two ago here uh, in our own area. The Feast of Tabernacles lasted seven days and was one of the great Jewish festivals. It was by far the most popular of the three, the most joy-filled. The feast was mainly a thanksgiving for the harvest of the year's wine and fruit and olives. It was also a reminder of God's provision as the people wandered in the desert for 40 years. In fact, it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, or basically the Feast of Tents, because it recalls how people lived in tents for 40 years in the wilderness. And when pilgrims would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they would often live in makeshift tabernacles, little stick and palm branch dwellings. Sometimes people would even, if they lived in Jerusalem, would even build them on top of their houses, kind of like we might put, I don't know, a nativity scene out in our yard or something for Christmas time. They didn't all live in the tabernacles, but they would eat their meals there to remind themselves that once they were a wandering people, but God brought them into new land. Might be something like a Jewish Woodstock, right? All these tents and... Well, maybe not quite like that, but you know what I'm saying. They all lived in tents. Water. Water also played a significant role in the Feast of Tabernacles. Each day of the feast, the priest would go to the Pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher. The priest would fill the pitcher with water, go back to the altar, and pour the water over the altar. Now the symbolism of the water has three main purposes. The water helps people remember that God provided water for them out of a rock when they were in the wilderness. Remember they were grumbling in the wilderness, they were thirsty, and God made rock come right out of this barren, or water come out of this barren rock. And it gave water for all the animals and all the people. Number two is that water is just simply a sign of life. When the priests would pour water over the altar, they would say multiple kinds of prayers. And one of those prayers was for the rain. See, the Feast of Tabernacles comes right before the rainy season. The people would often plant their crops and hope that over the winter they would be well rained upon and would bear fruit in the springtime. Finally, finally, The third thing, water pointed to a hope in a future promise. When God's kingdom would come in fullness, and it has to do with the scripture that Tim just read from Ezekiel 47, that one day when the kingdom comes, there will be this, this new temple, and the cornerstone of the temple will be a rock, and from that rock will flow water that gets deeper and deeper and deeper and go towards the Dead Sea where nothing grows. It's completely too saline way too salty and the the water will make it come alive there will be perpetual fishing there that will just produce plants and vegetation and fruitfulness wherever it goes it's a metaphor of the fruitfulness of God that will one day come and bless this world now the people were living under the pagan rule of what nation? Rome that's right They were under the pagan rule of the Roman Empire. 
They were thirsty. They were thirsty for this living water to come, for God's kingdom to come. This Feast of Tabernacles was a joy in remembering what had happened and looking forward to what was coming. That one day God's peace and His blessing would come to the world. So you see, this text is dripping with water symbolism. But this last week, Corey and I and the girls went to a pastor-spouse retreat in uh, Cascades Camp. It was uh, we were there Monday and Tuesday, and I don't know. I was really having a hard time as I was reading through this, and just Lord, where do you want me to take this? These chapters are so filled with different ways you can go and and things to say. And the Lord was showing me different ways of being thirsty. You know, on the one level, the Israelites were thirsty for this national God-kingdom thing coming, this river of living water, the new kingdom, the new earth coming and blessing everything. It was big picture. And in the same way, the church looks forward to the kingdom coming, to justice, to things being put right. We're thirsty for that, aren't we, when you think about it? Wouldn't you like to live in a world that's at peace? Where there's no more sickness and tears? But most of us, most of us don't live on that big picture level every day, do we? Sure, we want the kingdom to come, but we're thirsty for things like making sure there's food on the table at our house. We're thirsty to give and receive love. We're thirsty to be free from addictions and self-doubt. We're thirsty for the everyday things, probably more often than we're thirsty for the big picture. And I was thinking, it's too simplistic to assume that the people in John chapter 7, our text for today, were any different. It's too simplistic to think that they only were working in this big picture level. Sure, the Feast of Tabernacles was there and they were looking forward to the day when the kingdom would come. But they were also human with everyday hopes and dreams and desires. Take Jesus' brothers for an example. John tells us in the very beginning of John chapter 7 that the Judeans, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. And then his brothers say what? Go up to Judea to the festival. I mean, nice guys, right? Like, they're really looking out for their brother. You know, they say every family has a black sheep. You know that one relative, maybe it's a distant cousin who is always in and out of jail or, uh, you know, gets wasted at the family Christmas party. There's always, you know, that one in every family. And in our culture, black sheep are usually just, I don't know, kind of a nuisance. You might have a cousin who's a black sheep and it might be embarrassing, but you are known for your character. You are known for what you do in life. Unless you're running for politics or something like that. But in Jesus' culture, things were much more communal than individual. Much more communal than individual. So, I would not be known as Chris Eldridge, pastor of Letter Street's Covenant Church. I would be known as Chris Eldridge, the son of Rich Eldridge, the son of Raymond Eldridge, because my grandfather is still alive. He's the patriarch of my family. My reputation, my social credit rating is all wrapped up 
in those men, those older men of the family. That's what it was like in Jesus' day. The term's called diadism. Now we can't be sure, but the only words that we have about Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, are from the birth narratives. And many scholars believe that Joseph probably died before Jesus began his adult ministry. You just don't hear much about him. If that's true, and even really if it's not, Jesus is the oldest brother, the oldest son in his family. What he does affects the reputation of everyone else in his family, his mother and his brothers. How would you like it if your whole reputation was tied up in the actions of your older brother and he was going around saying, I'm the son of God, or you should eat my flesh and drink my blood? That wouldn't be cool. You'd want your older brother to just chill a little bit and uh, you know, relax with that. It's looking bad on us. And I got to thinking, what are Jesus' brothers thirsty for? Why do they want Him to go to this festival so bad? Well, they're probably thirsty for stuff we're all thirsty for. Relationship. Fitting in. Being accepted. The basic human thirsts. Those things are human thirsts whether or not you're in a communal context or you're in a Western individual context like ours. What are you thirsty for? What are you thirsty for? Jesus' brothers, they don't go about quenching their thirst in a healthy way. They want to feel better. They want the outward appearance to look normal. But they don't want to deal with what's on the inside. They want to drink soda when they've got the living water right there in their own family. Do you ever settle for the Kool-Aid of compromise instead of the real thing? And then think of the pressure that Jesus might have felt. You know, sometimes we talk about Jesus like He's this pre-programmed robot that came from heaven and He can't do anything but be perfect. John, the Gospel writer, goes to great lengths to tell us that Jesus is the Word that actually became human. He actually was human. He experienced temptation like the rest of us. He loved his mother and brothers, and I suspect he was conflicted inside. Part of him may have wanted to go to Jerusalem and show his stuff, bring honor to his family, and shame on his accusers. I mean, can you imagine being like Superman and, and not like showing it every once in a while? I mean, that's why all the superhero movies are so popular. Well, at least with me. Some of you too, okay. Everybody wants the underdog to show their stuff, to win the day. It must have been tempting for Jesus not to just go start zapping stuff and showing that He is who He said He was. But Jesus remembers. He remembers where He's from. He remembers who His Father is. Over and over again, we read about Jesus telling people He was sent from heaven, from the Father. He's there on earth to do the Father's glory, not His own. He has a kind of life that is so confident and so full and so beautiful and attractive to me and the cool thing about the gospel is that it tells us that that's the life we were meant to have and that's the life that Jesus came to give us 
is human to feel out of place. To feel like you don't fit. To be out of relationship. That's not how it was meant to be. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be filled to the core? Knowing no matter what other people think, you are a child of God. What are you thirsty for? So after Jesus' brothers head up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus sneaks up after them. There at the temple, He meets a mixed crowd. Some of the people absolutely intrigued by what He's saying and doing. Others are so offended that they want to kill Him. Nobody is understanding Him. They don't understand who He is. They don't understand where He's from. They don't understand who He's from. And they sure don't get the significance of His signs. So Jesus does something that clears the air, you might say. He does something incredibly radical. Now, it was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The seventh day. On each of the first six days, people would come. They would come and watch this processional that I mentioned earlier where the priest would take a golden pitcher, dip it in the pool of Siloam, and pour it over the altar. He would say prayers for the people, and they would hope in the coming kingdom. But on the seventh day, not just most of the people came. Everybody came. It was absolutely stunning if you were to be there. Now the population of Jerusalem, Jerusalem was actually a pretty big city in that day. 80,000 people, full-time residents. That was a large city in antiquity. But scholars say that anywhere between 200 and 250,000 people were in Jerusalem at the time of this festival. Pilgrims would come from all over the place for the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a sea of human energy. And on the seventh day, it would be built up to a frenzy. Now on the seventh day, the priests would draw water, again, from the Pool of Siloam. And then they would circle the altar in a grand processional. Not once, but seven times. And I know, like to me as I'm picturing this, that doesn't sound very cool. But trust me, it was the most joyous occasion for these folks. The anticipation of the crowd would have been palpable. It'd be akin maybe to the opening ceremonies at the Olympics, which is, if you've ever witnessed that in person, it's absolutely, you can feel the thunder of the people just screaming in your chest. Or it might be like the ball dropping at Times Square in New York City on New Year's Eve. It might be that type of anticipation. Only consider this. Those two events, Olympics and Times Square, are anticipating what a new year or, or a new Olympic game games, but at the Feast of Tabernacles, they're anticipating the coming of God's kingdom every year. This could be it. This could be the time. The people would wave two things, palm fronds, which they called lulabs, lulabs, and bundles of fruit called citrons, to show the fruitfulness of this living water, this expected uh, time when God would come. So there, these people, 200,000, 250,000 people waving these things, cheering and chanting as the priests are doing the processional around the altars. 
four enormous candelabras that make ours look ridiculous were lit, the, the light dancing in the background, and the people dancing with joy. One ancient source said, He who has not seen the joy of the water-drawing ceremony has not seen joy in his whole lifetime. I mean, it was that kind of event. Now the priests would have poured water over the altar and prayed for rain. They would also have a prayer for the resurrection of the dead, for new life and deliverance from enemies. So it was the seventh day, the height of the feast. And on the seventh day, Jesus stood. He was not a priest. And this would be really weird if somebody just, you know, I'm officiating here at the communion table and somebody just came up. Jesus gets up. Now teachers usually, and almost 99% in Jesus' day, would sit to teach. He stands. The height of the frenzy of the water-drawing ceremony. And he shouts, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. If you're thirsty, Jesus cries out, Come and drink. He's better than Gatorade. What is your deepest thirst? Many things, many things occupy our minds. Counterfeit beverages, I like to think of them. Mere sugar water compared to the living water. We've all, every one of us, me included, grown addicted to our own substitutes for the living water. Substitutes that you know darn well, like I do, leave us thirsty. Workaholism. Sports. Sex, food, alcohol, power, the latest gadgets, the cars we drive, the trips we take. Not bad things, but when we use them for escapes, they're false beverages. When we scratch below the surface, isn't our deepest thirst a thirst for right relatedness with God? To be filled with the God life. To be like Jesus. To have a life that is full of significance. As sons and daughters. As prince, princes and princesses of God the King. He will quench your thirst. He will wipe away your deepest shame. And He offers something more to include us in His story of redeeming the whole world. Amen? Come on. But there's more. In the prophets, think Ezekiel 47 that Tim read, where is the river of water flowing from? The river of living water. Where does it come from? From a rock that is the cornerstone of this new temple. How does Jesus interpret this? This is very important. John 7:38 talks about everyone who believes that Jesus 
is God in the flesh. All who trust that through His death and resurrection, we not only have forgiveness of sin, but the hope of eternal life in a world that will one day be recreated. For those who have faith in that and trust Jesus for that good news, Jesus will cause streams of living water to flow from you. That means something significant. That you are part of this new temple. That it's not some stone building that's coming here one day. But it is living. Active. Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. The giver of the living water, the Holy Spirit. He's the cornerstone from which the water comes out. He fills you through faith and you burst out living water. Through faith, not your works or performance, Jesus will send His Spirit to take up residence in this new temple of God. And I'm looking at part of that new temple right now. This is not some new agey thing where God is just generally in you. Think of what function a temple performs. People used to go to the temple, some still do, to meet with God, to find a safe place, a sanctuary. Your part of being the temple then is all about being called into a priestly, the priestly work of God. You are God's ambassadors. You are filled with living water, the very Spirit of God. You bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God wants to fill you with the living water so you can act as a moving, living, breathing temple so you can be a safe person, a sanctuary for others who don't maybe know God yet. Isn't that incredible? And I've got good news, especially for those who are a little bit skeptical. The reality is, this has nothing to do with how you feel. You may not feel full of God all the time. In fact, maybe most of the time, you don't feel full of God. You may not feel worthy to be the house of the Holy Spirit. Hey, you're not. That's the gospel. The good news is, this is something Jesus does to us through faith. Not something we can ever achieve. Earlier in John chapter 6, there's a question about the work of God. And Jesus says, this is the work of God. This is it. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's the work of God. What are you really thirsty for? Come and drink. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank You for this incredible word of good news. I know if there are 70 people here, there are 70 different ways to hear what You've just said to us. 
Lord, some of us have been following you by faith for a while. But we don't feel like we're bursting out with rivers of living water. And we're still hooked on counterfeit beverages. Lord, hear our prayer for those who want to to give up drinking Kool-Aid and be filled with your living water. Lord, we need to be filled with you. If we're to be your church here in the lettered streets and beyond, if if we're to be truly alive like you offer, we're asking, Lord, fill us with living water. And by your grace, help us to put away put away the false drinks that we live on. Lord, there are others here who are hearing you for the first time. Who want a taste of the living water for the first time in their life. all of us, why don't you just pray with me if you're comfortable. Let's pray silently. Lord Jesus, there is none like you. You alone have the words of life. To whom else would we turn? Lord, by your grace, I pray that you would help us to lay ourselves down. To put our hope and our trust in You. For the forgiveness of sin, the wiping away of shame, for new life, and for the incredible entry point into Your adventure of seeing Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Fill us with your Spirit. For we know that you came to give abundant life. And we love you for it.